I'm Josh Porter, and this is the Van City Church Podcast. The following teaching is part four in the series, Practicing the Way, Preaching the Gospel. Okay, so maybe the gospel isn't what we thought. Maybe it's something more. So how do we actually preach it? When I was uh, seven years old, the pastor of the church in which I grew up was called Papa Harold. Uh, This is the church, by the way. He was an old man, stooped and arthritic, and everyone loved him. And I grew up with church, with God, with Jesus. My parents were Christians. Their friends were Christians. The culture was quasi-Christian. And despite the fact that on any given Sunday, every one of the 200-ish men, women, and children at our church were already professing believers, every worship service ended with an altar call. Now, if you don't haven't been around uh, the Southern Baptist tradition, we had a Sunday worship service in the morning and in the evening, two different sermons each time, and two different altar calls each time. An altar call, for those of you new to the game, is when the pastor or speaker invites anyone who isn't already a Christian to leave their seat, make their way to the front of the sanctuary toward the proverbial altar as a public confession of faith in Jesus. And then we would say that they would get saved. Needless to say, on almost every Sunday, the final hymn played out with no takers because everyone was already saved. But when I, at age seven, asked my parents about some of the concepts that I'd grown up around, being saved, heaven, asking Jesus into your heart... They arranged for me to meet with Papa Harold to gauge the sincerity of my interest. So in his office, Papa Harold raised a gnarled hand and he marked a chalkboard with chaotic zigzagging sketches of white until its surface was littered with chaos. This, he told me, is like your sin. It's every time you do something that you know you shouldn't do. Tell a lie, take something that isn't yours. All of us do it. All of us have sin. But, he said, lifting the eraser... When you ask Jesus into your heart, he takes all your sin away because he loves you and forgives you like this. And Papa Harold erased the chalkboard. Simple as that. Now, he asked, does that sound like something you want to do? And as a seven-year-old, it really did. Now, to be fair, these things that Papa Harold told me weren't untrue. But there was nothing about the kingdom of God. There was nothing about Genesis, our call as co-rulers, sabotaged by our desire to rule ourselves. There was nothing about Abraham or Israel or the long line of failure kings disrupted by the victory of King Jesus. And who can blame him? I was seven years old. There was nothing about the defeat of death, the destruction of the Satan, the inbreaking rule of of God and the age to come. Just Jesus in my heart, your sin will be gone. So... The following Sunday, I answered the altar call. Later, I was baptized by Papa Harold himself, and my parents wept with joy. I had no idea what it meant to follow Jesus. Not really, anyway. So the question is, did Papa Harold preach the gospel to me? Can a seven-year-old accept the gospel? Was I saved then on that Sunday? Is the gospel something one accepts on a Sunday morning, or in a moment. Open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 4. Matthew chapter 4. Before we get to our text, I want everyone to imagine something with me. It's an exercise of the imagination. Go with me on this. You'll be fine. Everyone, once you're in Matthew 4, go ahead and close your eyes. Follow me with this. 
Imagine having this dream. First, the smell of smoke. And then you look, and on the horizon is the great city. The sky is dark with ash as great plumes of black smoke go billowing into the air over the smoldering rubble of what was once Jerusalem. A chill in the air rustles the grass around your feet. In the distance, the eerie, distant moan of weeping and wailing within the city walls. The mighty military power of foreign pagan Babylon has brought Jerusalem to ruin. And then behind you, the gradual crescendo of padding sandals and heavy breathing. And you whirl around and behold someone running toward you. You brace yourself for impact, but they pass by onward toward the felled city. The runner shrinks in the distance as he approaches Jerusalem. And then in the dream, you're suddenly within the charred ruins of the city itself. The great columns of stone have collapsed shattering into enormous fragmented boulders. The temple walls have fallen. The king's throne is cracked. Blood and fire and bodies ornament the scene. Mostly emptied, only a few Jews are left in the wreckage, and they huddle together in confusion and despair. How could this happen? One asks you. Has our God abandoned us? Another wonders aloud. Everything is like a bad dream. An old man with a long gray beard speaks up, barely louder than a whisper, his voice choked with remorse. We did this, he laments. We abandoned our God, and now our temple, and the, indeed the holy city itself, has been destroyed, and the people weep together. All is lost. But then your gaze drifts upward above the weeping remnant of survivors, above the glowing embers and shattered stone to a watchtower that remains standing, and on it a watchman. When the watchman squints out on the darkened horizon and sees someone running, the same runner from before, frantic, hurrying toward the fallen city. And over the ominous sound of the wind and the dying crackle of fire and distant lilt of weeping beneath, there's another sound. The runner himself is calling out as he comes. When the watchman leans forward, his brow furrowed. What? What is he saying? And then his words echo out again. Good news, he shouts. Good news. As the runner comes rushing into the fallen city, panting, his face bright with a great smile of joy, though his feet are torn and bruised from the journey, he says it again, I have good news, I have gospel. Though Israel has sinned, and though her sin has become her destruction, Yahweh is still king. Our God, Yahweh, reigns even so. And more beautiful, even still, Yahweh has not given up on Israel. He will one day return to this broken place, to this very city, and He will sit on the throne, and He will rule over His people and restore peace, silence the weeping, and dry every tear. And as was promised in the beginning, all nations will be brought into the blessing of God. And the watchman is overcome with a hope so profound, he sings out in joy. In fact, this story is realized in a poem from Isaiah. Open your eyes if they're not already and see how beautiful on the mountains are the feet of those who bring good news or gospel, who proclaim peace, who bring good tidings, who proclaim salvation, who say to Zion, your God reigns. Listen, your watchmen lift up their voices. Together they shout for joy. When the Lord returns to Zion, they will see it with their own eyes, burst into songs of joy together, you ruins of Jerusalem. For the Lord has comforted His people. He has redeemed Jerusalem. The Lord will lay bare His holy arm in the sight of all nations, and all the ends of the earth will see the salvation of our God. 
Okay, don't check out. I want you to imagine one more thing. Imagine that you wake from this dream. All of that, the burned city, the watchman, the good news, it was a dream. You wake in the crude, ancient dwelling of a first century Jewish home. The dream was a familiar one, one of the great stories of your ancestors, a story you've heard your entire life. It's not the first time you've had a dream like this because you are a first century Jewish fisherman or woman, and as a result of your deep love for your people and your heritage, stories like this one from Isaiah are often on your mind even while you sleep. Yours are the stories of Abraham, of Joshua, of Moses. Yours are the Psalms, the prophets, the wisdom of Solomon. And you live in the very land in which this dream story from Isaiah actually unfolded. But things are different now, different but not better. All is not well in the land of your heritage, of your people. The hope of that runner, of that messenger, the good news has not been fulfilled. God has not been restored to the throne. Your home, the city of Capernaum, is a militarized zone occupied by a foreign presence for some 70 years at this point. Though the land belongs to your ancestors, it is ruled by the Roman Empire. And these great centurion bullies remind you of their lumbering presence constantly. They make daily security rounds around the city borders. Your uncle, a farmer, was so burdened by Roman taxes that he was forced to sell his land and work as a debt slave in the fields his family once owned. These occupying powers care nothing for your stories, nothing for your way of life, nothing for your God. And with the dream reverberating in your consciousness, you rise and you set off into your village to prepare for a day's work of fishing. Dawn is breaking in the east, the air is cool and damp, and as the homes around you wake and stir, you catch wind of conversations around you, some sense of excitement in a nearby dialogue. And curious, you move toward the voices and you hear about a traveling stranger, a prophet, they say. Some bystanders join in on the conversation because they've heard about this guy as well, a prophet. Everyone's heard about him. Everyone is talking. Someone else says, eh, it's just another charlatan. We've had people like him before. And another rebuts, no, this one is different. He's called Yeshua Manatsarat, or Jesus who is from Nazareth. And he's been on the move. He's been traveling from town to town, village to village. And he's coming to this town next. This prophet, this rabbi, this prophet, this rabbi is coming to your local synagogue to teach. And you're not sure why, but news of this tra traveling stranger kind of lingers in your mind. No, it's not the first time you've heard about something like this, but you can't shake it. You simply have to see what all the talk is about. So at dusk, beneath the orange glow of a warm setting sun, you head to synagogue. And before you've even fully arrived, you're startled to see crowds are there enormous crowds overflowing from the synagogue, hundreds of people clamoring into and around a space that seats about 50 or so. So you hurry to the edge of the people, the excitement of the crowd. Everyone is standing on tiptoes, wanting a view. Everyone leans forward, craning their necks. And beyond the crowd, you can see just a glimpse over the heads, the stranger. And his voice rings out across this silent, awestruck mob. And you hear the message of this mysterious figure that has everyone talking. And you hear him say with your own ears, the time has come, it's here. Everything God said, everything God promised, God's reign, his kingdom has arrived. Change everything and receive the good news, the gospel. And you can hardly believe what you're hearing. The time has come. 
In the average print Bible, the Gospel of Matthew is approximately 30-some pages. Across the span of those 30 pages, one central message is reiterated by Jesus 1.5 times per page. This message is so core to the teaching and practice of Jesus, in fact, that it should arrive in our minds immediately on the heels of any mention of Jesus himself. So let's read this text and find out what it is. You guys all right? You still with me after all that? Great, thank you. Matthew chapter 4, beginning in verse 12. When Jesus heard that John had been put in prison, he withdrew to Galilee. Leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum, which was by the lake in the area of Zebulon and Naphtali, to fulfill what was said through the prophet Isaiah, land of Zebulon and land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles, the people living in darkness have seen a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. Verse 17, from that time on, Jesus began to preach, repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. There it is, the central message of Jesus of Nazareth, the concept to which he dedicated the most real estate of his teaching by far, the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God has come near. This is Matthew's way of describing what the other gospel authors call the kingdom of God. Matthew summarizes the whole message this way. Repent, which means stop what you're doing, turn around, because something is happening that requires us to stop, to reassess our notions about the world, our values, who we are, why, for what reason, what's happened. The kingdom of God has arrived or has come near. Now, let's be honest. The kingdom of heaven arriving is... For many, if not most of us, not the first thing that comes to mind when we consider the message of Jesus. But based on the sheer volume alone, it should be. Jesus talked about it more than any other thing. It's not hyperbole to say that all that Jesus said and did was and is an outworking of this message. And it didn't begin in the New Testament. Jesus didn't make it up. A few weeks ago, we pointed out that the concept of God's kingdom begins all the way back in Genesis 1. And the Bible's story Human beings are created to rule with God, to have dominion over the earth. It's the language of royalty, of kings and queens, made in God's image to collaborate with God and share in God's kingship, His good reign. But if you know the story, humanity doesn't want to share God's kingdom. They want their own kingdom. But we're not God, and we're not great at our own kingdom. For more on this, see the world. So you get war and oppression and racism and sexism and genocide and civil unrest and political megalomania and things like factory farms and ecological fallout and slavery and police brutality and sickness, disease, global warming, and on and on and on the list goes when people are in charge. And the Bible's narrative conflict unfolds from there. It's a story we know, all of us. You don't have to buy into the Bible's narrative to agree that the world is a broken Place. Even the most desperately optimistic person was likely convinced, at least by the last couple of years, that, hey, something doesn't quite seem right with this whole human thing. And this is what I want all of us to understand about the good news or about the gospel. Yes, the gospel is about God saving people, and yes, the gospel is about you. But all of that is situated within the story of Israel, 
All of that is situated within the story of Genesis, Isaiah, Capernaum, of what was said in that synagogue 2,000 years ago. And that's not just nitpicking. When we tear the gospel away from thousands of years of history and context, it's easy to whittle it down to a new size and shape digestible for evolving modern sensibilities and to lose in that process the great magnificent scope of the good news. And then the gospel becomes all about saying a prayer and going to heaven when you die, and that's it. Or all about being rescued from God's wrath, or all about your best life now, or all about doing social justice, and that's it. But it's so much more, so much bigger than these modern reductions. When we receive the good news of the gospel, when we, we step into and participate in a story stretching back all the way to in the beginning and all the way forward into Sunday evening in Vancouver in 2021 and beyond. It's about what happened in the beginning, about the predicament of sin and evil, about a people waiting to be rescued, and it's about the coming kingdom of God and the renewal of all things. And that, to bring this series to its conclusion tonight, begs a very important question. Okay, so it's really big. How do we preach all that. To end tonight, there's five ideas I want to unpack about preaching the gospel. Context, rejecting exploitation, radical lifestyle, letting go, and hope. First, context. Some people, God specifically asks them to abandon the life they know, get on a plane, go live amongst different peoples and cultures in order to live out and preach the gospel. We tend to call those people missionaries and not us. But in the scheme of the church with a capital C, very few people are called to that kind of overseas missional living. Even so, all of us are missionaries. Most of us are called to whatever and whoever is in our life at the moment. We are called to our context. And yes, that includes the more daunting ideas of things that terrify us, like sharing the gospel with friends or family or neighbors or coworkers or whatever. But it also includes those even more immediately in our lives. It means, for example, here's an easy one, sharing the gospel with your kids. A recent survey conducted into what common factors lead to those who are raised in the church deconstructing and abandoning their faith the results found, this was fascinating to me, that one common factor among those who did not give up on Jesus, those who were raised as Christians and decided to stay Christian into their adult lives, it, the, uh, the common factors were that they had at least six adults in their lives growing up who loved Jesus, were honest about their own faith, and didn't bail out on Jesus themselves. Now, newsflash, if you serve with Van City Kids, you could be among those six adults in a kid's life. Do you understand what an incredible privilege that is? And that's not handing out pamphlets and leading little kids in the sinner's prayer or marking, marking up a chalkboard or anything like that. That is just being in a kid's life as a faithful ambassador of the kingdom of God. If you are looking for an opportunity to share, to live, the gospel, there it is. Register, register to serve with the kids, get to know them, be present, follow Jesus well in their midst, talk about it. That is one incredible way to preach the gospel. You think they don't notice? Man, the other day, my daughter Isla, who's five, 
She was riding with me to the store. She told me about all her teachers at church, unprompted, by the way. I didn't ask. She was telling me each of their names, their personalities, what they tend to say, which ones, you know, are like this, which ones are like that. And then, of course, it always leads to, you know, Dave Zarate doesn't like ice cream. Can you believe this? They're obsessed with this fact that they, he doesn't like ice cream. All that to say, they notice. Believe me, they notice who's down there. They notice what you say. They notice who is a faithful presence in their lives. And they know that by being there and talking to them that you love Jesus and you're trying to follow him as well. You parents raising your children in the story of the scriptures, living it out with honesty about your own struggles, your own failures, commitment to the way of Jesus, that is the most important gospel opportunity in your life. And I realize not all of us are parents, but my point is that when we think of the gospel as like, oh, that's missionary work, as strategic and complicated and terrifying, we tend to overlook our own context and our own season of life, because it also includes the people in this room. My guess is that just about everyone in this room either knows or knows of someone who once followed Jesus but then walked away from the way of Jesus. Did you know that in James in the New Testament, it is written that if you play a role in bringing such a person back to faith, you, and I quote, save them from death and cover over a multitude of sins. It's not just people in other countries or neighbors across the street that need the gospel. The family of God often needs strong faith from those who have it for the sake of those whose faith has gone dry. And how? With winsome arguments and convincing data? No. What if you just believed, truly believed, that what Jesus said was true? What if you had no agenda, no pretense, no strategy, you just wanted badly to follow Jesus with everything you are for His way and His truth to invade every aspect of your life? Here's an example of how that works out in a profound and beautiful way. Last week, I was on stage before the gathering plugging in XLR cables. Really fantastic work. And uh, Eric was nearby, Eric, our director of music, and he asked me if I had heard a certain album yet. Hey, did you listen to this record yet? And I said, I have not. What do you think about it? And he said, I like it. It's like this. He told me a little bit about the record. It sounded cool to me. So I went home and I listened to it later that week. That, I would argue, is about as ideal a paradigm for preaching the gospel as any. Once I was on an airplane, which is just one of the worst things in the whole world. I hate airline travel so much. Does anyone else just absolutely loathe? Not just like, oh, it's not the best, but I actively loathe every step of that horrible, horrible process. I know, I know, whiny baby, first world, whatever. I was trapped in this miserable tube. You know, with, you can't move and you're just crawling in your skin and you can't sleep. I could never in a million years fall asleep on an airplane and, you know, everything hurts and, and I'm trapped next to this talkative passenger <laughs> um, and, you know, he really wanted to have a conversation the entire way. It was great. Uh, so he talked about where we were from and where we're going and then the guy asked about my work. Now, normally people ask me about my work, I answer and that's the conversation freezer. <laughs> um, Abby and I were just joking that we were in the hospital, just had a baby. Nurses are coming in every five seconds to tell you the same exact stuff over and over and over again. And one lady's like, so what do you do? I said, I'm a pastor. And she's like, hmm. She didn't say another. She just like quietly cleaned up and walked out. Conversation freezer. So anyway, I told this guy I was a pastor. He was very curious, full of questions, completely open about his misgivings with religion, which was refreshing. So I answered a few of his questions when he asked. I asked him some questions. He answered them. He told me why he didn't believe. I told him why I did. 
Eventually, the plane landed, we shook hands, and we went our separate ways. Very pleasant person. I could have been racked with anxiety, terrified of blowing it, worried that he, what he might think, or fumbling through some strategy. Okay, what am I supposed to say in what order? But instead, I just talked to this guy like a human being about something that's deeply important to me in my life and every decision that I make and why I do anything that I do. And I told him what I thought, not any kind of pretentious, preconceived, oh, it's like this, and I've got to get this guy to go to heaven. I just told him what I thought was the good news. I don't even remember if I put it like that. And I don't know what happened to him after that. In my context, this was a moment of preaching the gospel, a rare moment, but I'm open to them. I don't overthink them, I don't avoid them, and I don't force them. And here's what I mean by I don't force them. I really believe that strategic gospel efforts often, not always, but often, lead to exploiting and objectifying human beings as little more than targets for conversion. And to effectively preach the gospel, you have to reject exploitation. People are not marks. They're more than potential converts. They're human beings made in God's image with complicated stories and questions and doubts and suffering and joy and struggles. But I sincerely doubt that that is our problem, honestly, that we're all just so amped and desperate to share the gospel that we treat people like ministry targets. You guys, knock it off. Quit treating everybody in your life like a ministry target. Instead, what I think we probably tend to do is we overthink and we start to wonder about gospel opportunities, especially in the wake of a series like this one when it's been, you know, in conversation every single Sunday. And we start to ask ourselves questions like, oh man, are we missing opportunities? How could we ever possibly orchestrate such an opportunity? Are we having our neighbors over enough? At what point do we broach the topic? Are we saying Jesus-y things as being nice enough? Am I blowing it? But what if you simply lived out the call of discipleship over your life, and you step into your place in God's story, and you embrace the will of God over your life, loving God enough to speak openly and appropriately about Jesus with confidence, and also with tact and sensitivity. Because the gospel is not a sales pitch. God does not need you to sell anything to anyone. He's been doing all right for the last, you know, few thousand years bringing people into his story. But it's our story too. So it's just a question of can you share your own story? It's amazing to me that people have no problem rattling off details about where they come from, what music they like, what show they're watching. But it's like, what do you think about the world? (laughs) You know, all of a sudden you freeze up and don't know what to say about Jesus. I genuinely feel no trepidation whatsoever about talking to anyone about what I believe about Jesus or the Bible, whether it's the guy on the plane or the clerk at the grocery store or my neighbor or whatever. But I also understand that the gospel and people are far more complex than a conversion formula. And I sincerely believe that when we preach the gospel, we have to talk about it. No one ever magically deduces the gospel because their neighbor was friendly. But I'm completely convinced, on the other hand, that when we preach the gospel with words, it will always carry most effectively in the wake of a radical lifestyle. Many years ago, When I spent all my time traveling and playing music in a band, I had a conversation with a dude about eating trash. Now, this guy was also in a band, band much bigger and more successful than my band. We were traveling together on tour together, and he ate trash. Now, I should point out that I am not above eating trash. In fact, until recently, I still looked for trash corn every trip to the movie theater. For those of you who don't know, this is what trash corn is. You walk into the movie theater, you know, you have to pass by the bin on the way in. 
people buy the large popcorn that costs like $75 at the movie theater, and they eat like less than a quarter of it easily. No one ever finishes that thing unless they're passing it back and forth, you know, down the aisle with their friends. They, their eyes are bigger than their stomach, so to speak. So they get the thing, they barely eat any, and then they usually just kind of sit it in the trash upright like this. So I says to myself, I says, that's perfectly good popcorn that no one's eaten. And for years now, I just go in and look in there's popcorn, you take it out, and you eat it. I've never gotten sick that I know of, and nothing bad has ever happened to me except one time. <laughs> many, many years ago, early on into my adventure with trash corn, I got a thing of trash corn. This is when I was a little less, you know, discriminating with my trash corn. I, now I look for a good one. If it doesn't look that great, I just pass, right? So anyway, I got this one. It looked kind of iffy, if I'm honest. It was mostly devoured, and that's already a bad sign. I sat down at the movie, started eating it, and I got like a squishy popcorn, and it tasted kind of minty, and I was like, that's weird. I just kept eating the popcorn. Every now and then, I would get another squishy minty bite. I was like, man, what the heck? I thought maybe, I don't know, someone had junior mitts in there, too, or something, and then I found the dip bag in my bag of popcorn. <laughs> but, 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 come on, come on, you're fine. I'm fine. <laughs> that was very early in my trash corn journey, and I've done it, this is not an exaggeration, dozens of times since then. I've never found a dip bag a second time. So I think it's kind of like lightning, you know. <laughs> anyway, this guy that I'm talking about in my story, this is not about me. This guy, he ate trash, uh, and he took it further than I ever did. The two of us, so in, the, you know, in this particular scenario, the two of us were standing outside, I remember it vividly, standing outside together after we'd both played in Illinois. And he was by this big trash can on the street, and he was kind of looking at it as we talked, and he reached in and pulled out a mostly intact but half-eaten slice of pizza, like one of those by-the-slice big slices, and he just started eating it while he was talking to me. So I says to the guy, I says, hey, man, how come you're eating that trash? And uh, he sort of made it a joke and shrugged it off and kept going with the conversation in pro progress. But I was really curious, so I kind of pushed it. And I was like, uh, no, 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 really, why are you eating that trash? I couldn't imagine that this guy needed to eat garbage. Now, in context, my band paid no salary, paid little to nothing at all. You have to pay record label back tens of thousands of dollars before any record sales find their way back to your pocket, so royalties were scant. We got paid our daily allowance to be on the road, our per diem, was $5 every day. That's $5 to eat breakfast, lunch, and dinner, so you figure that one out. But his band was doing great. If anyone should be eating trash, it should be me, and I wasn't. So, I, you know, why? Why eat the trash? And he said very humbly, very sincerely, this wasn't like a big put-on. He just didn't have that kind of personality. But he kind of shrugged, and he said, I just sort of feel like I'm not real picky. I don't mind eating, you know, half a slice of pizza. And if I don't spend all my money on myself, then I can give more of it away like Jesus wants me to. And I thought, well, he put it like that. Now, I'm not saying to you guys, go eat trash. But I am saying that when you embrace a radical lifestyle, it comes up and it rocks people's worldview. It did to me. It completely changed everything I thought about. That was the beginning of my journey to simplicity, just by what this guy said. He wasn't even going to offer up the information. I had to drag it out of him. And people in your life are likely to ask, whatever it is that you do, what made you decide to live this way so contrary to the status quo? 
And the answer, like this guy's, will be simple, Jesus. Why aren't you caught up in the cyclone of materialism? Why aren't you participating in social media outrage? Why aren't you angry and volatile politically? Why aren't you participating in the hateful pandemic rhetoric? Why do you choose to live so simply? Why do you resist materialism? Why don't you spend all your time on your phone? So we tend to make basic moral behavior a radical lifestyle, and it just isn't. Chances are no one will notice if you're a decently moral person. Most people are decently moral. No one will care or notice if you're just friendly, if you have a somewhat healthy marriage, if you're not awful to your kids. That's all great, but it's not exactly radical. Anyone can do that. Radical discipleship moves beyond basic good behavior and into that which utterly defies the comfortability of the host culture. But remember, it's a two-way street. In the same way that radical lifestyle begs the question of the gospel, it also conjures the anger of the status quo. Because when you live differently, you're calling the way things are into question by simply living out a different story, and people don't like their stories challenged. So that same evening that the guy told me about his willingness to eat trash in order to give his money away for the sake of the kingdom, I went back and I retold the story to some friends, and it was incredible to me to watch the divided reaction. One group of the people that heard the story was like me. They were inspired by it. You know, they're not necessarily going to eat trash, but they were just really touched by, you know, forget the distracting aspect of eating actual trash. I keep saying it, and I know, I know how it sounds. It was the incredible commitment to make oneself uncomfortable for the sake of generosity. Translate that however you will. But another few people weren't impressed. They were annoyed. And they said things like, how stupid, too far, they said. And I got the distinct impression that it wasn't just that they thought it was icky. Everyone thought it was icky. It seemed to me that they took actual issue with the radical nature of his logic. And I realized then that it was because they didn't like the way that it made them feel. It was almost like the pushback was, well, if that's radical, then that would imply that we might be called to do something radical, and we don't want that. We want to live how we live now. The gospel actually lived out disrupts. So even if you live radically, even if you contextualize, even if you're gracious and nuanced and bold, most people, I would argue, and Jesus said, will reject the gospel. So we persist in the truth in radical living, in preaching the gospel, and we let go of the fact that no one will be coerced into the kingdom. We can influence, we can participate, but we can't control, so we have to let go. And it makes sense. Nearly everything Jesus says defies, defies logic and sensibility. It's so bizarre and unexpected that in the gospels, Jesus has to explain it like crazy over and over and over again, point blank and with metaphors and parables. So when the gospel is preached, with all that it brings, things will get uncomfortable eventually for everyone. And according to Jesus in the scriptures, the majority of people will confront that discomfort by simply saying, no thanks, I'll pass. Because Jesus will make incredible statements about how we, do, how we are to understand our money, our bodies, our sexuality, how we navigate relationships and marriage and singleness, the way that we shop, the way that we treat people that we don't like, the way we resolve conflict and deal with our enemies, both personal and national. In Matthew's language, stop what you're doing because something has happened that requires us to reconsider everything or, the shorthand, repent 
for the kingdom of God has come near. And it begs the question, will we submit to this king and step into his kingdom, or will we pick and choose how we define good and evil for ourselves, just as it was in the beginning? And many people will say, but I'd rather be with the culture. They'll hear the gospel with all your nuance and acumen and friendliness and everything else, and they'll say, I'd rather stay with my political tribe. Or they'll say, I'd rather be with progressivism. I'd rather be with conservatism, whatever. And you can't have both. Nearly everything Jesus says will be counterintuitive to us at some point. The first shall be last. Power is displayed in weakness. Respond to violence with love. Value other people and their interests above your own interests, even at the expense of your own interests. And some of us in the room, we heard all that, we are hearing all that, and we are saying yes. We're here, and that should give us hope. Hope that the gospel continues to go forward and continues to change the world. This story you and I belong to, yes, it was written to someone else in a different time and place and language, but those of us who participate in this ongoing story of God's people, the church, the growing kingdom of God, we are now a part of this story. So consider this for a moment. These stories are not designed to simply relay history. They do that. This community, along with other communities of disciples meeting together all over the world today, really, visit and revisit these stories so that they may bring you and I into a living encounter with the same Jesus that approached those fishermen by the lake and said, drop everything and follow me. The same person standing outside the crowded synagogue with a message that made their heart light up. The time is now. The kingdom of God has come near. Jesus continues to waltz into our midst, so to speak. He still calls us to follow him. He still confronts the darkness in our lives and the world and forces us to make a decision about whether or not we will or will not bring our reality into submission before Jesus the King. And you know right now what is not submitted to Jesus a relationship, your sexuality, a habit, the way you spend money, the way you eat, the way you communicate, the things you do and do not do, what you say, you know that there are gaps between what is submitted to Jesus and what is not. This is spiritual formation, closing that gap. And Jesus, by His Spirit, will always bring our attention to those gaps and say, this is not right. He will always bring those things to you and say, this is how you remain enslaved. You are destroying yourself. Let me set you free. And some of us, some of you have entire lives not at all submitted to Jesus. And I get that. We're all in different places with Jesus more or less. And that's okay. You're welcome here. It's a safe place to learn about Jesus and other people working to do likewise. But listen, a bit of forewarning, Jesus will not simply stand by silent nodding, saying nothing, waiting for you to work it all out. He will, if you actually have an active relationship with Jesus by His Spirit, He will speak up, and He will provoke and challenge and invite you to make decisions about the way that you live and understand reality. And in reality, you make decisions about Jesus every day. It's not exactly something you can set in limbo you're not waiting to make decisions about submitting to Jesus. You are making them every moment of your life. You're saying no to Jesus' way when it comes to sexuality or money or relationships, or you're saying yes. It really is kind of that simple, a yes-no matrix. You're simply 
saying no to Jesus or you're saying yes. It's pretty simple. It's a bit of a paradox. Submitting to the authority of King Jesus is actually freedom. The only way to become a fully realized human and to have what Jesus called the life that is truly life or life to the fullest. In Matthew's gospel, we're given this clear portrait of what life in God's kingdom looks like through both the teachings and the lifestyle of Jesus, but not before you get the invitation. And this one heck of a stipulation, repent, come and die, and then follow me. Of course, most of us have gathered by now that the entirety of your habits and behavioral patterns and the depths of your heart and mind cannot be simultaneously surrendered to Jesus and in that moment transformed and upended for good. It's a process. Jesus compared it to walking a narrow road. It's a journey. He loved to describe the way of the kingdom of God and the way that it spreads. It's almost uh, surprising, the metaphors he uses. It's a tiny seed that grows slowly into an enormous plant. It's a small ingredient that spreads slowly throughout a large recipe. And yet you know right now, you know the thing or things that are not submitted to the way of Jesus. It could be simple, relational things like flakiness, non-commitment, faithlessness, or things that are more perplexing and complicated like an addiction to pornography. It could be materialism or it could be drunkenness. It could be smartphone obsession to bitterness and broken relationships, whatever it is for you. And though we tend to become utterly convinced that these things are either healthy or maybe we tell ourselves that eh, they're unimportant, or we just say they're unchangeable. There's nothing I can do about them right now. But if you want to follow this Jesus character, he will present you a radical paradigm for what it means to be human. And you'll see as we move on through the journey of following Jesus, it doesn't sound like you know Jesus standing by, yeah, I know, wow, but maybe you could sort of, I mean, if it's not too much trouble, just think a little bit differently about this, sort of, but hey, whatever works for you, your truth, you find your own journey, you find your own truth, you're so special. Jesus tends to say, look, this is the way to life, and all this leads to death. And moreover, not just death for you, but others. Choose life, follow me. God has provided a way out of this mess that we're in. And that is good news, that Jesus brings life and freedom from the human predicament. Something is wrong. We need saving. The story of God rescuing humanity has come to fruition in and through King Jesus, the messenger running toward the fallen city. I have good news. May we learn to proclaim the same message and proclaim it well. Let's pray together. Thanks for listening to Van City. You can connect with us and find more teachings and available resources at www.vancity.church. You can support Van City financially at vancity.church/give.